Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, COVID-19 cases continue to spike across the country. Why is it happening? And are political leaders doing enough of the right things to flatten the second wave? We'll have an expert take on what's going on. A new federal initiative pumps money into cities to turn properties sold because of the pandemic into housing for the homeless. Cabinet Minister Ahmed Hussain will be here to explain. And voters in Saskatchewan deliver a historic win for Scott Moe and the Saskatchewan Party. We'll take a closer look at the results and what they mean. But we'll begin tonight with growing concerns about the spread of COVID-19 and the challenges in trying to get control of a second wave of the pandemic. On a day when Canada is at the roughly 10,000 death mark in this country from the virus, health and political leaders are expressing frustrations over people not following the rules and guidelines to curb the spread and warning that health systems could eventually be overwhelmed if that continues. Some provinces, such as Quebec and BC and Alberta, have extended restrictions, others have not. So mixed messaging is clearly a problem. The Prime Minister is calling on Canadians to follow the health orders where they live and warning that rising cases could put Christmas gatherings now at risk. We are in an unprecedented global pandemic that really sucks. It's tough going through this second wave. It's frustrating having shut down all of us, our lives, through the spring uh, and now be forced to make more difficult choices and knowing that it's going to be a tough winter ahead as well. It's easy for us to want to throw up our hands. I think we have to ask ourselves who we really are as Canadians. Are we really good neighbors? Are we really people who care about the most vulnerable, about each other? I know we are. And it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect every step of the way. And it does mean we have to continually remind ourselves to follow public health advice. But I know Canadians can get through this together. And yes, we've seen rises in cases here and there. We've also seen flattening of the curve in other places. We know we can do this. We've done it before. All right, that was the Prime Minister pleading with Canadians earlier today. And in Manitoba, which now has the highest per capita active case rate in the country, a blunt message from the Premier there. Thoughtful Manitobans are making sacrifices, uh, tough sacrifices. People have missed funerals of friends and family members. People have had to stay away from loved ones they they would love to be with and offer support to they just can't do that right now while other people are doing dumb things and those dumb things are endangering all of us but it's just a real darn shame that some people just don't seem to get it and don't seem to get through get with the program and they're endangering other people's lives while they're being thoughtless Dr. Ray Dionandon is an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa who specializes in global health. He joins me now. Uh, Dr. Dionandon, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So we are starting to see this stubbornly high case count in many parts of the country. And in some cases, what seems like a refusal to follow the health orders and restrictions being put in place in some of those provinces. Why do you think that is? What do you think is happening? 
a lot of things going on. Number one, there I think there was a miscommunication early on where people got the idea that this was a one and done. Back in June, when the first wave was over, we thought we were done with this. That was never the case. This is always going to be a multi-month, possibly years-long endeavor. So that's the first thing. Second is pandemic fatigue is a real thing. Right, So people are getting tired of the restrictions. They want this socialized back. I understand that. Third is that we're dealing with another epidemic, and that is an epidemic of misinformation and active disinformation. Mm. Misinformation includes things like we already have herd immunity, or it's not that serious, or it's a case-demic, or it's even a hoax. And the disinformation is people pushing that narrative from some political quarter or other for whatever agenda. So all combined, it's causing people not to be compliant with the social uh, guidelines that we put forth in, um, by public health leaders. And that's a problem. So when we had originally planned for how to deal with epidemics and pandemics, nobody ever anticipated there would be so much pushback mm. on the plans. And we didn't anticipate that there would be, again, active misinformation and disinformation. So that's a new thing we're going to have to figure out. Okay, let, let me unpack some of that because there, there's a lot in that. The, the Prime Minister made the case today that uh, you, you talked a little bit about uh, communication and messaging and so on. He, he made the case today that, look, the messaging is different in different parts of the country uh, because the situation is different in different parts of the, com uh, the country. Some places facing a bigger problem than others. So he says we can't have a one-size-fits-all message. So, so do you believe that's right? It's definitely right that this isn't just one epidemic. It's multiple epidemics with different faces depending upon the population and geography we're talking about. What's wrong, though, is that some things are universal. One, it's a real disease. Two, it can be dangerous at the community level. And three, it's not a hoax, right? And four, this is a multi-month endeavor. So those messages have been lost along the way, and that's not subject to geographical variation. Right. So what is a, if you're the prime minister of this country, what do you do about that? He's, he's taking some of the heat. Uh, for what's happening across the country, although a lot of this, as we know, is, is provincial jurisdiction. But people look to the federal government for leadership in these kinds of things. What else can he say? Well, there's not a lot he can say at this point. We can look back at the failures in the past and think about how we can better deploy our tools for the future. But this reminds me that this is a crisis in civics as well. So, so much of this is an inability to understand that my actions affect you. It's the butterfly effect work large. And I think that is a useful message to explore, the fact that we are all responsible for each other. Each other. And this is not about individual risk. It's about community risk. That narrative, I think, is largely missing from the national picture. Hmm. Uh, he, he re he, I think he reintroduced it today at one point he was talking about look we uh, we need to sort of uh, ask ourselves really are we that good of a neighbor i mean he's really calling on canadians to think about exactly what you're talking about personal actions and i'm uh, i'm wondering you know whether uh, you think the, the population is open to that message now or whether the fatigue uh, the fatigue factor might be so big that you know you'll have a lot of people saying you know, whatever uh, i'm not sick uh, the people I know aren't sick, so I'm not worried about this. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think that's a concern for a lot of people. It is, but I think Canadians, for the most part, are fairly community-minded, especially compared to, let's say, the Americans. It's just that this disease doesn't tolerate a lot of dissent in the sense that, you know, 5, 10, 15 percent of people don't go along with it. That's fairly intolerable because that can cause some super-spreading events. So what do we do about those 5, 10, 15 percent who don't care about their neighbors? Well, for them, a different strategy has to be employed. And I like the idea of explaining that this is a marshmallow experiment. If you can wait a few more months before socializing, you get more marshmallows, you get an open economy, you get to socialize more. So again, that trade-off has not been fully explained. 
you talked about the misinformation and disinformation. Have governments and health leaders in this country um, been effective at getting out the message against a growing social media campaign by some groups and individuals, as you point out, pumping out misinformation and din disinformation, telling Canadians, look, uh, this is not a real thing. It's a hoax. It's a government-sponsored uh, uh pandemic and not to worry about it. Uh, how do they deal with that and have they been doing a good job so far? In my opinion, they have not been doing a good job, but I'm sympathetic because they didn't expect to have to fight this uh, battle and the communications budgets and resources aren't meant for this kind of thing. So as a result, citizens have had to step up and create little collectives for actively combating misinformation. The problem is that science by YouTube video is more reachable, more accessible than science by peer-reviewed paper. And unfortunately, science by peer-reviewed paper is more accurate. So what we need to do is use the tools of misinformation, use the social media, use the infographics, use the easy messaging to combat the misinformation. And again, uh, the resources aren't there yet, and hopefully we can get our act together quickly to make it happen. How concerned are you that uh, we will continue to see cases rise or stay uh, uh, too high for comfort. Um, where do you think we are in, in that process, uh, let's say over the next couple of weeks? Uh, how pivotal is this time? It's pretty pivotal. So much of the country is below healthcare overwhelming status. I mean, there's room at the inn, as some people say, but we're getting to the point where we might be overwhelmed, right? So this is never about mass deaths on the street. It's always been about overwhelming of our healthcare system, and certain parts of the country are feeling the strain. So the next couple of weeks are kind of critical to setting the stage for what happens in the long, dark, cold winter when the flu cases start to rise and when hospitalizations might go up. So it's very important for people to diminish their socializing so that those hospitals do not get overwhelmed. And yet in some cases, uh um, there are some simply threatening to ignore orders. Look at look at what's happening. Some private gym operators in the province of Quebec ready to defy the restrictions. Um, and the Premier of Quebec saying today, look, if they do, we'll fine not only them, but we'll fine the people who go and use the gyms. Uh, is that the right approach? It's a tough call, right? Public health is in many ways a game of incentives and disincentives. It's carrot and stick. And the messaging has been mostly stick at this point, you know, scolding people for being bad about socializing and then deploying the big stick, which is the law and finding. We haven't explored the carrot. What's the carrot here? The carrot is if you do these few things, then maybe we can get an open economy in a few weeks or months and you can make back your money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't do these things, this goes on much longer and there's more suffering. That has not been adequately explained or mapped out for people. So it would be useful if we had a longer term plan that could be explained to the population right, and then fill, fill it with some confidence and an incentive again to go along with the plan. Right. Um, why do you think that's been a failure? Why, is, it, is it because it's something we haven't dealt with before and, and it's all so new or do you think uh, it's more, it, there's something more to it? That's part of it. It's definitely new. Also, we're not used to in the West planning for more than a few weeks and even months in the future. Definitely not years. This is something anathema to our planning process. So we have to think long term now. Unfortunately, we're sort of, you know, putting all our uh, all our hopes on a vaccine and the vaccine is coming without question. It's just that it may not come in a few weeks. It will take months and it'll take even months longer to deploy it and to get an immunogenic response, etc. So if we can get that timeline straightened out and put together a plan and explain it to the people that this is how we're going to do this. Expect the vaccine you know, around this time of the year. Expect uh, this delay in deploying, etc., etc., etc. I think we'll get a lot more buy in. 
All right, lots to watch, uh, lots to think about as well. Dr. Ray Dionandan, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the federal government today provided more details of its rapid housing initiative announced in the speech from the throne last month. $500 million will go to 15 of the country's largest cities facing a shortage of housing for low-income families and the homeless. Another $500 million will be dispersed across the country to provinces and territories, municipalities, indigenous governments and non-profit groups, all part of a plan to build 3,000 new affordable housing units across the country. Ahmed Hussain is Canada's Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. He made the announcement today along with the Prime Minister. And as you can see, he joins me now. Uh, Minister, good to speak with you again. Thanks for making time. Thank you for having me. Tell Appreciate me how this billion dollars will be used to create new affordable housing units. Uh, first of all, you know, this is a very specific uh, initiative. It's rapid, uh, not just in terms of the housing that will be built, but it's also rapid in terms of how quickly we will get the money out to municipalities, to nonprofit organizations, indigenous communities, as well as uh, other other communities. So, a um, billion dollars. The first five hundred million dollars, as you said, is going to the top fifteen cities in Canada, who have the highest number of individuals experiencing homelessness, and the highest number of renters in severe housing need. So, five hundred million dollars, and they those municipalities don't even have to file an application. They just have to tell us how they'll deploy that money mm. to build rapid housing quickly, and we'll give them the money uh, very quickly based, again, on a ratio that we've uh, designed uh, together with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which is, um, which is uh, of course, uh, proportional to the number of uh, homeless, homeless right. individuals in those municipalities. So to be clear, in terms of stock, we're talking here about uh, repurposing hotels, motels perhaps yep. that uh, yep. have, have not been able to make it through the pandemic, uh, rehabbing yep. office buildings, even perhaps that kind of thing? Yes, but also in addition to that, it also covers the, the cost of purchasing land to build rapid housing. But also in addition to that, there are very exciting things that you can do now with modular housing. Modular housing has come a long way. Mm -hmm. And I have seen projects with my own eyes that have been, that have been built in a, number of, in a, in a matter of months. Uh, so rapid housing solutions exist. And these municipalities and other communities that were asking us to give them the resources so that they can rapidly build this housing or as you said acquire properties convert them into housing and house people permanently that we've been able to house temporarily throughout the pandemic all right so the, the uh, as i touched on and you mentioned as well there are these two streams of 500 million dollars yes. each in funding yes. uh, the one stream includes as as we know now 200 million uh, for the city of toronto alone and lesser amounts for other major cities uh, give me a better sense of how that funding uh, was decided if it, it took the, the top 15 cities that have the, the highest need, uh, the, that are in most housing need, and also the, the top 15 cities in Canada that have the largest concentrations of individuals experiencing homelessness. And when, when, you look at it, when you look at it that way, of course, the top city will be Toronto, followed by Vancouver, followed by uh, Montreal, then Ottawa, and then a number of other cities, including Halifax and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Quebec City and so on. So uh, it's 15 munis uh, municipalities. Initially, the, there were some ideas to limit it to the top five or top 10, but I felt that 15 municipalities was the right way to go. And by the way, we consulted very extensively with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So you see there a really good mix of 
large urban centers, uh, mid-sized cities, and smaller communities, all represented uh, based on, again, the population. But right. it, it doesn't preclude other cities and other NGOs from also applying to the second stream, which is another $500 million. So as long as they can demonstrate that they can build or convert housing into housing that people can move into after 12 months, they will be eligible for this money. I think that's and it's, that, that, and it's 100% funding. It's 100% federal contribution. Right. So they, they, they don't have to find matching money. If, if, if they can find no, the property, no. uh, yes. it's with it. So they, they now essentially have a, uh, a defined pool of money that they can go out yes. and, and buy, uh, either, either build it, buy it, uh, or convert it uh, yes. for the homeless people in their city. Um, let, yes. let me, you, you, we talked about Toronto, $200 million for Toronto. Uh, you, you said you're hoping this will create 3,000 uh, new affordable housing units across the country. Uh, the city of Toronto says it needs 300, uh, it needs 3,000 uh, affordable housing units right now, city of Toronto alone. So how much of a difference do you think this can make? Oh, this will make a big difference. Remember, this is just part, this is only one part of the larger national housing strategy. We have a $55 billion uh, 10-year strategy. And with this new rapid housing initiative, uh, it's $56 billion. So Toronto has benefited extensively. I, I was in, in Toronto on Friday making an announcement uh, where we supported Toronto uh, through the innov housing innovation funds. And we, we, we chipped in eight, just over $8 million to construct uh, a project of 110 units to house homeless individuals in Toronto. So, you know, the national housing strategy is still continuing, but what we are doing with the Rapid Housing Initiative is to respond to the severe increase in the number of homeless individuals as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The, the, the key timing element here, you touched on it, is a turnaround in 12 months. You want these yes. projects done in 12 months. Yes. Uh, that's still 12 months. Uh, we, we have winter coming. And yeah. uh, we have lots of people living on the streets in this country. I mean, do you know of, uh, of some of these projects that, that will have new units available before? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Yes. So be before, before we actually, winter. I'm not sure they yeah. can done before we get into winter, but at least sometime in the next couple of months. Yes, absolutely. And, and the only reason I know that is because a lot of the major cities have already been, um, been securing uh, or at least identifying potential uh, motels hotels that right, are in anticipation of this program yes well first of all in, in anticipation but also even before that they they were they were always looking for money and resources but the plan to build rapid housing or to acquire properties was always there and they were asking us to help them and we responded uh, through this rapid housing initiative but the other thing i want to point out mm -hmm. uh, just to give you one example through the national housing strategy co-investment fund we were able to uh, help the city of Toronto to rebuild and repair 58,000 housing units through the co-investment fund, a, a, a funding amount of 1.3 right. billion dollars. Right, the but, you, but you know the complaint about that. You, you know the complaint about that. The NDP's commit and said that uh, all of the money's gone to Toronto. The vast majority, 75 percent of it's gone to Toronto. Very little to other uh, provinces or municipalities. Absolutely not. Okay. okay, so let me give you let me give you one example Very of how. How false that is. Uh, the, British, the, the province of British Columbia uh, constitutes 15% of Canada's population. Yet we have invested 25% of the co-investment fund in British Columbia. $2.5 billion in British Columbia. But is, so, the, is the money, money is, is that money in the hopper or is that actually, uh, so actually the flowed like it has to Toronto? 
the $2.5 billion has either been spent in British Columbia to create housing or has been committed okay. to, to real projects. So, you know, and by the way, uh, the NDP was going to spend $60 million as part of their previous campaign platform on reaching home. This is the federal um, anti-homelessness program, just $60 million for the whole country. We're talking about $55 billion uh, to, to, to make sure that every Canadian has a safe and, and affordable place to well, call home. And you saw the speech from the throne. Uh, we're, we're going even more ambitious by uh, promising okay. to eliminate chronic homelessness from Canada. Minister Hassan, we'll have to leave it there. But thanks for your time tonight. Good to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me. Federal Liberals have held on to uh, both seats in by-elections in Ontario last night in Toronto Centre and York Centre. But the margins of victory for the Liberals in both of the ridings are much lower than in the general election last year. In Toronto Centre, former broadcaster Marcy Ian won the seat for the Liberals with 42% of the vote. But Green Party leader Annamie Paul, who finished a distant fourth in 2019, placed second this time with 33% of the vote. The seat had been held by former Finance Minister Bill Morneau, who won it in 2019 with 57% of the vote. And in York Centre, the Liberal candidate, Yara Sachs, won with almost 46% of the vote, compared to 42% for the Conservative candidate, Julius Tiangsun. People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier ran in that contest as well. He finished with less than 4% of the vote. Here's how the Prime Minister reacted to the by-election results today. Mostly, I'm excited to have... A these two individuals who are uh, strong, powerful, uh, compassionate members of their communities uh, stepping up uh, to contribute to the work, the important work that all parliamentarians and this government are doing to deliver for Canadians through this pandemic. And a third provincial election during the pandemic has once again rewarded the incumbent. In Saskatchewan, voters there have given Scott Moe and his Saskatchewan party a fourth majority government. It's Moe's first election as premier and party leader. It's been 60 years since the CCF, led by Tommy Douglas, won four consecutive majorities in Saskatchewan. There are still thousands of mail-in votes to be counted, but as it stands now, the Saskatchewan party won around 60%, maybe a little more, of the vote and 50 seats, and the NDP won just 11 seats and less than 30% of the popular vote. I'm happy to see the mandate that we have. I, I believe that this is a party that you know, does have a plan for a, a strong future for this province. Um, I believe this is a party that does have the priority of leaving things just a little bit better than we found them and pro providing that opportunity for that next generation to really, um, you know, succeed. Murray Mandrick is a columnist with the Regina Leader Post and the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. He joins me now from Regina. Uh, Murray, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me tonight. Uh, look, give us some perspective on how significant this victory really is for Scott Moe and the Saskatchewan party. Well, from a historical uh, perspective, it's pretty huge. Uh, according to Eric Grenier yesterday, this has not happened in terms of a government getting 360% plus uh, popular vote majority since Joey Smallwood. That's how big it is. Uh, it, it's huge from a Saskatchewan perspective, too. You'd actually have to go back to Tommy Douglas to see this many consecutive unaided majority governments in Saskatchewan. That's four of them for Mo right now. This very conservative province. And uh, people sometimes don't get that because it was the home of Douglas, Romano, right. Blakeney, the NDP. But really, if you look federally and if you look how it actually has shifted in the last 30, 40 years, 20 years, certainly, we've become very conservative. What do you think explains that shift? 
farming, oil wealth, a uh, little bit more mining wealth, moving away from the traditional problems of, uh, of uh, uh, agriculture where it was small farming to farming becoming big, big business in Saskatchewan. Uh, it's, it's agribusiness now. We don't even refer to it as farming. Uh, certainly the nature, the really resource-based uh, nature of Saskatchewan, all those things tend to contribute to what has been somewhat of a gradual shift. You have to remember here, it was more gradual because the NDP uh, of uh, of yesterday were considerably more conservative maybe than the NDP of today. Right. Uh, we'll come to some of that in a moment. Saskatchewan, look, it's, it's faced uh, many of the same pandemic challenges that other provinces are facing. Is it is it too simplistic to say, look, Scott Moe was rewarded for his response to the to the COVID-19 pandemic? Or, or do these, these results tell a, tell a much deeper story? I, I think all provinces that have held elections have proven to be rewarded. And I think all governments right now are being rewarded by federal money. Uh, Scott Moe and the SAS party are just particularly more unappreciative of it. They, the first thing after the, the election, they went after Trudeau and the carbon tax, uh, once again signifying the bad relationship between Ottawa and uh, Saskatchewan that is bad, but is made worse by the way uh, they handle it and by the way they kind of use it for political gain, which they did once again uh, uh, last night. Mm. That tends to be terribly problematic because all of a sudden we have uh, a, a Western separation voice that's a lot louder than we thought it was. Right. So does that uh, do the results of last night uh, embolden Scott Moe to be to be more that way? Clearly, that's the talk he's been talking and he's been rewarded for it by the people of Saskatchewan. Yeah, I think it does. And that's rather unfortunate because even unlike Jason Kenney, who's called out separatists in Alberta in no uncertain terms, I don't really see uh, Scott Moe having gone that far. And personally, I think he needs to, to nip this in the bud. Uh, I don't know if he will, though, because he can play off it as a uh, premier fighting the carbon tax, taking it to the Supreme Court of Canada, challenging Justin Trudeau. Uh, and he was still doing that last night, even after not really mentioning it all that much in this campaign, because like he really didn't have to. Right. Let, let, let's talk about the differences between the two leaders here uh, to help uh, an audience across the country understand a little bit more about Saskatchewan politics. Uh, Scott Moe, the farmer with deep rural roots, the NDP leader Ryan Miley, also with Saskatchewan farm family roots, but he went, went on to become a doctor and a social activist. Both men fighting their first elections as party leaders, but uh, facing very different challenges in trying to build and hold support. Tell me about that, because you've been writing about that. Uh, yeah, I have. They can both come from the farm, but that's about where the similarities stop. Uh, uh, Scott Moe continued farming, uh, continued to become a really popular MLA, which is why he became leader. He, he was elected as leader about the same time Ryan Miley was in early 2018. But Scott Moe was elected with the support of 23 of the 48 members of the, the caucus at the time. So incredible support from within uh, because they just saw him as a likable, saleable guy, which they needed after Brad Wall, who was uh, uh, quite charismatic. Obviously, if you've watched Scott Moe, he's not as charismatic as uh, Brad Wall. But there's something likable about him, or so voters hmm. seem to indicate last night. Ryan Miley, in his own way, is a likable man, very nice man. He's a, a, a doctor, family doctor, and a social activist. Uh, but he sort of went the urban route, and his appeal has been to that audience trying to do things for people that haven't had a lot of things done for them in Saskatchewan, whether it's the disadvantaged First Nations people, uh, people with substance abuse issues uh, that all became part of a, of a sort of Saskatchewan NDP campaign 
that had way too many focuses and was spending right. way too much. So, sorry. So if you look at, you know, if you look at these results, uh, it, you know, do you, do you see them as a rejection of the NDP leader? And in fact, uh, he may he may lose his seat as we uh, await for yeah. the uh, the counting of uh, mail-in ballots and so on. So is it a rejection of Ryan Miley or or of uh, traditional NDP policies or or maybe it's both? Little from column A, little from column B. Uh, it's one of those situations where Ryan Miley takes the NDP a little further in the direction that the rest of Saskatchewan doesn't want to see their opposition party go. I would argue. Uh, I think because of his social activism in the past, there's a sense of distrust on that. That became a talking point for Scott Moe during this particular issue. I don't think it's anything personally against uh, Ryan Miley because he's a pretty uh, inoffensive chap, but he is seen in that particular way. And even more problematic is that the NDP have been on a 40-year march away uh, from power in this province, and this is just the latest steps in that long uh, march. And right now, they're kind of edging up to the edge of the cliff. All right, Murray Mandrick, uh, good to get your perspective. Thanks for uh, this conversation today. We'll talk again. Thanks for inviting me. And that's all the time we have tonight for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks again for watching. Catch up with you next time.